Well, I can confess that uh, you need to bear with my infirmities a little bit. Pray for me that my voice holds up. <clears throat> but if it doesn't, that's okay, because a lot of what I wanted to say today has already been said. The Spirit of the Lord moved another brother to think about a similar topic and to go to a passage that deals with a lot of the same things. I'm additionally thankful, though, because while going through the outline I have here, I had to trim down a lot, and the verses that I trimmed happened to be ones that were already read. So the ones I'm going to give to you are ones that haven't been used already for the most part. God is sovereign. That's what we believe. He rules over everything. And yet, we experience pain. We experience sorrow, loss, and suffering. And the natural question arises from that. Does Jesus care? I want to make this personal to you. The passages that are found in this outline, the ones I've selected, are personal to the children of God and to individuals of how God shows his care for them. The actual name of the outline is, Does Jesus Care? It was originally preached November 26th in the year 2000. I will confess, if you are having difficulties and troubles and you want an easy outline, this is one of the shortest outlines you will find on the website. It's only a page and a half, and it has less than 70 references. So it shouldn't be too hard to go through. Now, I've trimmed it down significantly to fit within 15 minutes. Does Jesus care? When we ask that, we have several different questions that come along with it. The first question is, does Jesus know that I have problems? Does he take knowledge of that, of me individually, me personally? Turn, if you would, to Psalm 139. And as usual, I'm going to have lots of references. You can turn with me or you don't have to. Some of them I will read directly to you. Some of them I will just reference for the sake of time. But uh, if you'd like, you can keep up with me in your Bible. Psalm 139. Most of this psalm speaks about the knowledge of the Lord towards us. Right. Starting at verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. And then you can go through the next couple of verses, and it speaks about there's nowhere you can go, anywhere in creation that you can be separate from him. He's everywhere with you. And then... You go to verse 13 through 16, and you have a description of God knowing us from conception. Every single detail, every single part of us. God has known they have been written in his book, and he fashioned them. Mm -hmm. So, does God know about your problems? God's known you from the beginning. Every single part of you. He knows. He sees. In Matthew 6, it speaks about the fact that He knows before we ask the things that we need. He knows about the lilies of the field. He knows about the sparrows of the air, such minor insignificant things. If he knows about them, if he takes knowledge and watches over them, how much more us who are of much more value than those things? Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Does Jesus know about your problems? Does he see, does he know that you have difficulties? Because it's easy to look around and say, no one else knows my sorrows. I mean, some of us have things that we know about. 
But almost every single one of us has something in our hearts that we're not discussing, has some problem, some difficulty, some fear that no one else knows about, but Jesus knows. Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints in the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now we know that this is speaking about Jesus. But let's take for a moment and ask, how much does he know you? Can you tell me the difference between your soul and your spirit? He can. He knows the difference between the two. Are there times in which you don't even really understand what you're thinking yourself? I can confess that that's me sometimes. He knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. So those sorrows, those problems that you have that no one else sees, that no one else knows, he sees. Everything is naked and open unto his sight. He knows you. He knows your sorrows. He knows your cares. So the next question is, well, he knows me. But what does that mean? Does he feel for me? Well, the very first passage to look at are the next two verses. Does he feel for your sorrows? Verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He doesn't just know. He doesn't just have knowledge of all things. He feels our sorrows. He feels our griefs. He feels our difficulties. When we are cast down, he knows and he feels it with us. What a great God we have. Do you feel that care pressing down upon your soul? He knows it. He feels it with you and he cares about you. Now, in the New Testament, in Corinthians, we have a passage that talks about that don't glory in your riches, don't glory in your wealth, your knowledge, glory in God. If you look at the original Old Testament passage that mentions that, that's in Jeremiah chapter 9. What does God want you to know about his nature? He exercises loving kindness in the earth. That's what he wants you to know about him. That's what he wants you to glory in. And not only does he exercise loving kindness, he delights in showing loving kindness. That's the God that we serve. Additionally, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I wanted to try and find some passages that you might not have looked at very frequently, that you might not have considered. And there's some marvelous passages that if you're going through your Bible, you've probably come across them. You have come across them. But you may not have realized the greatness of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Do you want, if you want to know how God feels for his people, Deuteronomy 32, starting at verse 8. This is speaking of what he did for Israel. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. And he led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Does he feel for you? You're the apple of his eye. 
You are his portion, his inheritance. That's how much God feels for you in your misfortune, in your difficulty. He feels that the apple of his eye, he protects us the same way that you would the apple of your eye. Does he help? Okay, so, so he sees and he knows. He feels for us, but what does he do about it? Deuteronomy chapter 33. This page over. Actually, two pages in mine. Deuteronomy 33, starting at verse 26 through 29. Deuteronomy 33, 26. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency upon the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord. The shield of thy help, who is the sword of thy excellency, and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. Does he help? Indeed, who rideth upon the heaven to thy help. The word help is mentioned in here twice. It speaks about being their refuge, their safety, their salvation. That's what God does for his people. Again, when you feel those cares, do you, do you think about these things? Do you look at the word of God and realize when you are in difficulty, he is your help? You can have that support. Again, another passage you might not have seen before. Turn to Isaiah chapter 63. <clears throat> Excuse me. Brethren, I know there are hearts that are, that can be downcast, that have been downcast, but I want you to realize that you don't have to be. You can be excited knowing that God is there to help. And that's what I want to do. I hope you can see that. I'm excited. I'm excited to give this to you because He is so great. He is so wonderful. Does He help? Isaiah 63 and verse 9. Speaking again of the children of Israel. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. He carried them in their affliction. And even though that affliction was for their sins, even though it was in his will that they were afflicted, he carried them. He was afflicted with them for their sakes. What kind of God do we have that supports us so well? Now, anytime that you look at someone or something for help, you expect references, right? Anytime that you're looking at something, you want to, you want to know, well, can you give me an example? Let me give you a couple examples from God's word of his help. And I'd actually point out, looking through the outline, because I just grabbed these straight from the outline, almost a large number of them are women. The way that God picked those women out as well. Because, you know, yes, the Bible is a man's book, but look at how much he has given help to those in misfortune and under desperate circumstances. Think about Hagar. Mm -hmm. Thou, God, seest me. An Egyptian slave. Thou, God, seest me. Think about that level of care. Think about Joseph. 
betrayed by his family, sold into slavery, losing at every single turn, despite his best efforts. God moved him up anyway and put him in the pinnacle of power. Think about Moses' parents. They have to put their child in a river to hide him. And yet he is picked up and protected and brought again to the pinnacle of power in Egypt. Think about how God helped in that circumstance. And, and not only that, but then his mother got to help take care of him and raise him along the way. Think about Ruth, Moabitess, widow, ending up with a man of great valor and wealth and in the line of Christ. She's already been mentioned. Think about Hannah. She was barren. She had another, she had a rival who mocked her, who gave her difficulty and trouble. And yet she had the man that was the most important in Israel as her son. Think about Esther. Again, another orphan. An orphan who went and saved her people ended up the queen of the greatest nation on earth at that time. Think about Elizabeth. She was not only barren, but she was old. She was past age. And she had a son named John the Baptist. Think about God helping all of them. Think about Mary Magdalene. Think about her in the presence of a Pharisee calling her out for being a sinner and having Jesus tell her her sins are forgiven. Having Jesus defend her from that Pharisee. Think about the widow of Nain. Losing her son. Having the Lord come and raise him up again. Think about the Gadarene. He was lost. Truly lost. And no one could help him except Jesus. Think about the man born blind. From birth having no sight. Just so Jesus could come along and heal him. Think about that level of help. A miracle never done before. Think about Peter. Peter, who had committed such a heinous sin as to deny the Lord three times, and yet the Lord had a personal message for him. So we have to ask, knowing all these things, what does he want from us? What does God want in exchange for this help? First of all, we already covered it today from the end of Psalm 27. Believe, trust his care, and have courage. If we do those things, he will help us. Be careful for nothing, but turn it over to him. Philippians 4. Come boldly for his help. Again, the end of Hebrews chapter 4. And if you would turn to 1 Peter 5. I hope that immediately those of you who know your Bibles well started thinking of the answer to the question, because the question for the outline is, does Jesus care? And the answer to that is found in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. Does Jesus care about our misfortunes? Does he care about our trials? 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon him. When we have those cares, when we have those fears, do you cast those cares upon him? For he careth for you. Amen. The Lord God cares for us, brethren. He knows our situations. He knows our fears. He knows us personally, individually. He feels our suffering. He feels our trouble. He comes and he helps because he cares.
Proverbs 11.30 The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of true biblical evangelism. As we just sang, our evangelism, as we understand it, is our lives. It is adorning the gospel in our lives so others may see it. This study is needful because we live in a country, in a land, where most evangelism is based off of the premise of the Great Commission, as is given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We differ in this area because we do not believe that is our premise for reaching the lost. I want to look at this topic using the who, the what, the where, when, why, and how method so we can get as broad a view as possible and be as efficient as possible with our time. This study is not going to be exhaustive. There's so many more things that we could say about evangelism and how we reach the lost and who the lost that we're reaching truly are. An understanding of God's sovereignty and man's total depravity is essential for us to really understand what it means to save the lost because we know that unless the Lord works in a man's heart, he cannot be saved. We believe the verse in 1 Corinthians 9.22 where Paul says, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. We believe this verse just as much as we do any other passage in Scripture, but how we apply it to our lives is where we differ from most. Since the Great Commission is considered by most, to be their basis for evangelism. We're going to have to take a look at that and look at what we believe about the Great Commission, how it was fulfilled perfectly by the disciples to whom it was given. Then we can move on and look at what we are to be doing when it pertains to spreading the gospel and who the gospel ought to be spread to and how the gospel ought to be spread. The Great Commission, Mark 16 15, says it most concisely. And he, being Jesus, said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Most believe that this commission is still ongoing, that we have a duty to fulfill it in this day and age, and that it will not end until Jesus Christ returns. Why do we believe differently? Why do we differ from most? We believe this commission was given specifically to the original 11 disciples that Jesus spoke it to, And that in each case, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit with signs and miracles and wonders that they could perform so as to to actually be able to fulfill the Great Commission in the way it was supposed to be fulfilled. We believe that the apostles fulfilled this commission. There's at least 11 different references in Scripture that speaks about them having fulfilled it, that that their words had gone out throughout all the lands. Consider five verses after we're given a great commission in Mark 16, it says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul confirms this in Romans 16, where he says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but is now made manifest 
and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. We could look at perhaps missionaries and the way in which they go about reaching the lost, and that no missionary alive today does it like the Lord Jesus Christ commanded. You are not to take any money, any clothes, and you're not to take anything with you to supply your journey, yet they all spend at least a year, every couple years, getting money and supplies so they can go fulfill Jesus' command, even though he told his disciples not to do that. They violate Scripture and their, full, and their seeming fulfillment of Scripture. Furthermore, consider that the Great Commission is not emphasized, repeated, implied, or even referenced by any of Paul's epistles to any church or to any minister. He never even mentions it. There are many duties given in Paul's epistles, but they all pertain to godliness, to spiritual growth, but not to evangelism. Lastly, we believe that no souls are in danger of missing eternal life because God and Jesus Christ will not lose any, as John 6 and other passages teach us. Amen. This is why we differ. We believe that the Great Commission was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled perfectly in the first century A.D., given to the apostles who fulfilled it perfectly, and were told that in Scripture that they did go out to all the lands, it was preached, and was given for a very specific purpose in a very specific time. So let's look quickly at the who, what, when, where, why, and how of true biblical evangelism. So who can be affected by the gospel? Who is the gospel for? It is only for God's elect children that are already regenerate. Have, have having had their hearts opened and prepared by the Holy Spirit yeah, yeah. to receive the things of his word. Amen. It is foolishness unto an unbeliever. The right. word of God has no effect on any man unless the Lord has opened his heart and prepared him to receive the things of the Spirit. Jesus says in John 6, he says, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. That is true of salvation and it is also true of conversion as well. What means has God blessed to spread the gospel? What means? It basically boils down to three different aspects. The local church, a family, and our adorning of the gospel in our own lives, in our personal lives, and the testimony that we have. The local church is where a faithful minister preaches the word and explains these certain words of truth to a congregation. The families were is where a father instructs his children in, nurture, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In our personal lives are as a candle in a dark world, adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the things the Lord is blessed Amen. to Amen. preach the gospel, if you will. Consider how that the Apostle Paul, as I've already mentioned, never spoke about evangelism like the world speaks about it, as the world believes it, but in, instead he emphasizes spiritual growth and practical godliness and righteousness and for established believers to take on the gospel of Jesus Christ, to adorn the gospel and to live it out in their lives. When? When are we to be spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ with our lives? If we look at the three main ways that the Lord has blessed, the local church, the family, and our personal lives, 
to have his word proclaimed, then the church ought not to forsake the gathering of, them, of themselves together. Pastors ought to be instant, in season and out of season, right. out of season, preaching the word. And we personally ought to be ready always to give an answer. Amen. So gathering, instant, and ready always to give an answer. Yes. Amen. Why? Why do these regenerate children need the gospel? Do they need it for salvation? Do they need it for eternal life? Our understanding of the sovereignty of God is that no, they were saved before the worlds were formed. They were saved in the Lord Jesus Christ and that the gospel has nothing to do with their eternal salvation. They need the gospel for their instruction and holiness and righteousness for a life more pleasing and glorifying to him. The gospel is not for their eternal salvation, but for practical salvation from ignorance and sin. How? How do we spread the gospel? We've already answered this question in the previous five points. But quite simply, it is supporting the local church and the ministries we have in our church. Giving diligence in the instruction of our children. Sanctifying ourselves. And being ready always with an answer. Where should the gospel be preached? Where should the gospel be preached? Wherever God's people are known to be. Consider our own trips across the world to reach God's elect, to instruct them in further righteousness and in truth so that they can better follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the people the Lord sends our way. Not only do we go to them when he calls us, the Lord also sends them our way. The, uh, the emails we get, the updates of believers that want to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ and his truth, the Lord sends them our way, and he sends us their way according to his sovereignty. Amen. For us personally, these regenerate children of God are sometimes our neighbors, as the, Lord would, as the Bible terms those that we come into contact with, our neighbors. Whether near or far, the gospel should be shared with his saints, in any way he has blessed. So what are our duties in evangelism to wrap this up? Fathers, you should be teaching your children the word of God. Believers, we should be supporting the ministry. We should be supporting our pastor. We should be edifying one another in truth and in love. And we should be making the Lord Jesus Christ preeminent in our life so that others could see the hope that we have, and if they are God's children, they would have a reason to ask, they would want to ask a reason of the hope that lies within us. May we remember these things. It is one simple point, this, of biblical evangelism. is a point where we differ from most Christians. We should remember it, be ready to give an answer if they ask us about us, and I'll also be reminded that we ought to be living lives that are pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can fulfill true biblical evangelism. Amen. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. It's a perfect lead-in song. I'll go ahead and get this point out of the way. One of the things that I want to leave you with is a foundation of our religion. And it comes from a question that 
Saul, who's quickly to become Paul, asks, on the road to Damascus, when God changes his life. And each of us, I believe, at times have asked this same question, and I today ask this question with you. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at verse 5. And after he was knocked to the ground, Saul says these words, And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I want to ask you this question, and I want you to answer it with me, and I hope by the time my time is up here, I will have answered it for myself and encouraged you to think about it and answer it for yourselves. Young and old, we must keep in focus, who art thou, Lord? Those of you that have been in the way of spiritual things for more years than others have an obligation to remember why are you there and whom do you serve. Those of you that are young and just now being converted to the way of truth more perfectly, you must establish yourself on who art thou, Lord? Every religion has an object of devotion. Do you know the one that you have? We call ourselves Christians. Do you know who Christ is? We do things like pray in Jesus' name. Do you know why you do this? Or do we flippantly let in Jesus' name off our tongues, forgetting who Jesus is? Jesus is the Almighty, but it doesn't matter if you don't understand what He's done, and it doesn't matter if you don't realize your need of strength, for the Almighty has no value to you. We must understand the components surrounding any name, description, or appellation given to our king. And so I want to take a two-step approach to a couple of his names and descriptions in his scriptures. Brothers and sisters, we are in the midst of a drama that started before the world began. And its scenes are being played out every day. In scripture, we see many of those scenes. And we're given an insight to see how this drama is working. In every drama, there's a hero and there's a villain. Do you know your hero? Do you know why he's your hero? And do you believe that he truly is a hero? Every verse of Scripture gives us a little more insight into how this drama is playing out. The value of a hero is understanding what you were saved from. And some of these names and descriptions will show you where you were and how you were saved. Each title gives a little bit more information about the aspects of this great king that we serve. The Lord Jesus takes on different names at different times for different reasons. Who do you need today? Sometimes we need a comfort. Sometimes we need power. Who is it that you need today? There's around 300 different names, titles, descriptions, and appellations given to our king. 88 of them were mentioned in a sermon a few years ago. Eighty-seven of them were mentioned again in a reminder from our brother Newell. Two hundred and eighty-eight of them are on a piece of paper that were given to many members in this church around 15 years ago. My desire for you and myself, that as we open the pages of Scripture from this time forth, and especially as we have our thoughts geared towards it in 2015, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ, and every verse that we read and watch this drama unfold. Amen. 
Let us move through a few of these. The first one is in Genesis chapter 3. We must go to Genesis chapter 3 because that is where it starts. That is where the first scene of this play unfolds. Again, I want to take a two-step approach. First, I want to give you the situation that we find, the name or description. And then I want to give you the value or the need for such a name. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. We've just found perfection polluted. We've just found God's promises turned into damnation for what we have done in the Garden of Eden through our representative in Adam. But verse 15 and 16 tells us that we have a little insight into what's going to happen in the future. One of the scenes later on in this drama, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I ask you, is the Lord Jesus Christ the seed of the woman to you? Do you understand the need for a seed of the woman? Without the seed of the woman, we were cursed, we were damned, we were cast out of this perfect garden. Contrary to popular opinion, eating of the fruit was a bad idea. The popular opinion was eat the fruit and become knowledgeable like unto God. But in that, in doing that, they were damned and cursed, and we, in turn. Right. Moving on to another name. Jacob is talking to his 12 sons. There's a need for this seed of the woman to come through one of those 12 sons. And as Jacob's given these blessings, he gets to Judah, and he says that there's going to be a Shiloh that's going to come forth. And with him will the gathering of the people be. There was a need in that setting for that seed that had been promised and for it to come forth. And it came forth in Shiloh. Is he Shiloh to you today? Do you understand that there was peace that was going to be needed? And that Shiloh brings that peace. I want to mention many, and I have to skip over some for sake of time and to keep the point. Counselor is a wonderful one from Isaiah. In the midst of some of the damning things the Lord was going to bring to judgment on some of his people and those of the surrounding nations, he gets to a verse and just the Lord gives him wisdom to all of a sudden call our great king a counselor. Do you find yourself in need of a counselor at times? Do you need wisdom? Do you need knowledge? Do you need understanding for what's going on in your life? He is the counselor. Let's move on to Daniel chapter 9. Think with me the setting of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, a righteous man, understood the times and found himself confessing the sins of his people to God. It's great verses of a humble man, of a meek man, as we heard, confessing the sins of those that he had seen sinning against the Lord. And as we work our way through this chapter, we find that the Lord heard the, the uh, confession that he had. And we get to we get to verse 21. And we hear these words, Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. There's our setting. Daniel's confessing the sins of the people 
and needs understanding, needs this revelation to be brought forth more clearly to him. It's given to him, and then we get down to verse 25 and we read these words. Now know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks, and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Was there a need for a Messiah? We sitting here confessing these sins. These sins were damning sins. These sins were going to cause his people to find themselves cast out in utter judgment. There was need for a Messiah to come, and there the Lord would take care of his people. Let's move to to Matthew chapter 1. This drama is unfolding. Each of these names are parts of this drama. They're scenes, they're insights for you to see what's going on in the universe. I ask you, who is he to you? Do you know him? In the tone of S.M. Lockridge, do you know my king? Those of you that don't know who S.M. Lockridge is, he's got a 6 minute and 38 second praise and glorifying a skit, so to speak, on the uh, website. SM stands for Shadrach, Meshach, and he was lit up one day. And whether put down on paper beforehand, we don't know, but he did a marvelous job of praising the Lord God with the uh, different terms, descriptions, and appellations that are given to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, the setting. Joseph finds his betrothed pregnant. A little bit of a problem. A little bit of a bad situation. But yet what comfort comes from Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. And this is the comfort through the Holy Ghost that is given to Joseph in the midst of this difficult scene. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joseph, in the midst of this, thought to put her away privately, knowing that this would have been a great mark against her and even against him. But what comfort was given to him in a name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Not only now was it being turned that she had not done anything wrong, but she had been counted on worthy to bring forth the Son, Jesus. I know most of you like the the, uh, term, the name, the Good Shepherd. We find Jesus telling his disciples about how the Pharisees and the Sadducees were going to be condemned and cast out and were not part of his elect. And then he goes into some beautiful words about how the Lord Jesus was going to be the good shepherd for them and he was going to take care of them. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 gives us several names and I want to point out Alpha and Omega. The scene. John in the Isle of Patmos, on the Lord's Day, was in the Spirit. But in the Spirit, he was seeing a revelation that was being opened up. But this revelation was Alpha and Omega. And that was the term the Lord gave himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now the comfort, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Some may say, 
You weren't there in the beginning, so you don't know. He was. Some may say, well, you, how do I know you'll be there in the end? He will be. Amen. Some of you say, you weren't there during the process. He was. Take comfort. He was from the beginning, and you'll be, you'll be there at the end. Again, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge says, he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. Amen. Psalm 45, 17. I want to answer, who art thou, Lord? And I want to do it this way. Psalm 45 and verse 17. We heard these words last Sunday. I took great comfort in them, and they established what I wanted to do today with you. I ask you with our, with our brother Saul, Who art thou, Lord? I ask you with the hymn writer, Whom do you serve? I ask you with S.M. Lockridge, Do you know my king? Psalm 45.17 says, I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Here's my answer. He's the Christ, the only cure for the cursed conundrum we caused from creation. He was despised, derided, degraded, and damned to death, but he defeated death by his dominating deliverance. His name is excellent in all the earth forever. Every other everlasting ends except those of the eternal Father, and every edict he enacts will forever encompass his elect in eternity. He's a fan for the fainting, a fulcrum for the feeble. He's a friend of sinners, the first begotten, and the author and finisher of our faith. He's the first fruits of the faithful, and he has the final say forever. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. He helps the humble, heals the helpless, and holds the hurt. He is the Emmanuel, the I am that I am. He is incredible, irresistible, invisible, inevitable, irreplaceable, inconceivable, indestructible, and indescribable. He's the mighty maker of marvelous mansions for Marys and Manasses. He's the epitome of purity, the prince of peace, the prophetic Passover, and a potent propitiation. His presence is powerful, his power is paramount, and his product is perfect. The quality of his quintessence is unquestionable. The quantity of his care is unequivocal. He's the root of Jesse, the rock of offense. His rhetoric is renowned. His religion is routinely rejected, but respected and revered by rejects. He redeemed his ransomed by his resurrection, and the reward is remaining for his restored rebels. He was stricken, smitten, sabotaged, and surrendered. He went straight into serenity as the sun stopped shining. He's a savior. He's supreme. His sovereign power is, is supreme, and his salvation is successful. He's totally triumphant and trustworthy in all truth for all times. His tact is untainted, his tenure is not temporal, and his timing is timeless. Under his wings are unimaginable blessings. His thoughts are undefiled, his understanding is unlimited, his mercy is unbelievable, his sacrifice is unachievable, his uniqueness is unspeakable, and his character is unquestionable. Wonderful are his works, and his word does not waver. Wonders untold are within and without. He watches out for the widows, whispers to the weak, and withholds the weather for the wayfaring. That's my king. Amen. Thank you, brethren. Matthew, Colin, Nathan, Eric for leading us, the, leading us in singing. Again, the Lord is just too good. The Lord is just too good. Don't you love all the different perspectives we've seen this day of our, our, of our great king? The different aspects of his nature and who he is and why we should be thankful before him. Please join me in standing. Please remember the youth meeting tonight at 5 o'clock. The ladies meeting on Wednesday night in their, little, their groups. The sign-up sheet for Rachel in the back.
Our most gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us into your presence this day. We thank you, Lord. We have come to a bountiful feast this day. Thank you for the comfort that you have given to us in our meeting. Thank you, Lord, for the instruction that you've provided for us. Help us, Lord, that we may grasp these things, that we might hold them dearly to our hearts, and that we might apply them diligently to our lives. Remember the prayers that we've offered up, Father, and bless us. For if you do not bless us, Lord, we will not be blessed. Dismiss us now with your blessing. And may Jesus Christ be lifted up and magnified in our lives by all that we say, think, and do this day and the days following. For we ask these things in his glorious name. Amen. Amen. And you all are dismissed.